Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Holly with a note about this episode. We recorded our interview with Glenn Sobel pre-pandemic. We talked about his upcoming tour with Alice Cooper, which was supposed to have started this month, and many of the other concerts Dave and I had planned to see this summer. We didn't want to edit it out because we felt it was integral to the episode, even though, sadly, all tours have been postponed. And so this is Dave, and with that said, Holly, let's get started with the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Let's get to Alice. What was the audition like for that? I mean... What do you do? There really for that? wasn't. Okay, there was. Okay, not not a traditional audition like you'd think. In fact, most people hate auditions. I would imagine so. Yeah, and I'm glad that there wasn't. Just there's so many there's so much guesswork in an audition, and so many people would agree with me. They'd want the artist or whoever to say, "This is how we want to do this," just like this one live recording. But there's just a lot of guesswork, and there's management and label people that aren't musicians that are hearing with their eyes. They don't know who's a better musician. They just think like, oh, well, that person looks like it's like casting a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looks and, the part. Yeah. And and the, the more non-musicians you have in that room, the more the image is going to dictate who's getting a gig. And that, that is important. It's show business where it's a visual medium. But with Alice, the first thing I ever did for him was something where I never met him. It was a recording. This is 2010 in Nashville. My good friend of 30 years now, which is crazy to think, but Tommy Hendrickson, he's a guy I've played in different bands with, and he became a producer. Producers are the guys that get the session players on the gig to record for whoever the the star, the singer is, whatever. And so Tommy was living in Nashville. He was working with Bob Ezrin, who produced Alice's big hits back in the day. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm 18 was Bob Ezrin's first hit as a producer, and it was Alice's first hit. Mm -hmm. So, and Bob went on to do Pink Floyd, The Wall and Kiss Destroyer, Peter Gabriel, just a lot of legendary stuff. So he was overseeing this recording that Tommy brought me into. Tommy was Bob's sort of right hand guy. And we were doing note for note remakes of School's Out, No More Mr. Nice Guy, a few of the classics. And Alice was re-singing it. And the question is why? Why do that? Well, if a movie or a commercial or a video game wants these songs, now the artist has this newly recorded master, a knockoff, but you're supposed to fool people into thinking they're hearing the original or a remastered version of the original. When I had to actually chart out, not just chart out, but notate note for note what Neil Smith, the original drummer was playing. 
And so I had a crash course in Alice Cooper just from doing that session. And it went off pretty well. I mean, it was just verbatim playing these parts. And it was with Reb Beach on guitar from Winger. And he played in Alice for a good while. Great guy and player. And Greg Smith, another Alice alumni that now plays with Ted Nugent. I was the only guy that had not played with Alice on this session, but we had a blast. We had to recreate the 70s with the drum tones, and we had the original producer where um, if you don't show up prepared, he'll yell at you, but I already kind of knew that ahead of time. <laughs> and, uh, no, we had a good time, and it went well enough to where a year later they were asking Bob Ezrin to produce the show. And he said okay, but he wasn't liking the lineup, the current lineup. He wanted to make some changes, and – he said to Tommy, my buddy, he said, yeah, what about your buddy Glenn that did uh, the, the recordings last year, the remakes? And Alice said, well, I heard him. I sang over his tracks, but I didn't see him. I got to see him. My drummer's got to be flashy. And so Tommy <laughs> pulled up some YouTube right then and there. I think they were working on Alice's latest studio recording in Nashville. This is 2011. And based on Tommy showing him whatever video, I don't know what, some drum solo thing, I guess the drum solo did help get me a gig <laughs> but the substance was that recording that's i count that as 80 percent of it the other 20 percent being alice being able to see that i'm not some boring looking guy on the drums and then tommy vouching for my character i'm not crazy i'm not an alcoholic i'm reliable all that that's that goes a long way in fact that's what many people lack in this business and they wonder why they don't get work the reliability thing but tommy called me he said, I'm sitting here with Mr. Cooper and we're looking at your videos and you want to do this gig? And I was asleep in LA. It was two hours earlier. I said, yeah, man, let's do it. And he went, all right, you're in. Click. And it was basically, that was it. Wow. And I, and I met Alice <laughs> on the first day of rehearsal, which was the following April in Nashville. What were you doing at the time? What was your, your gig? Were you playing at the time? I had come off of that Vasco Rossi tour not long before that the the big italian guy because that was at the end of 2010 and this was early 2011 when all this went down so good timing yeah it was and i just remember coming home from that italian thing going oh i just did this amazing thing and it was like stadiums and arenas and i did five weeks and helped save the tour and nobody knows in america because it's an artist that mm -hmm. isn't doesn't just plays over there mm -hmm. in in italy for the most part so it was nice to finally get on a gig that was obviously an iconic rock star that's known the world over. And you're entering your 10th year now. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I know. So what is the secret? I mean, he's still playing big arenas. He's playing the Hollywood Bowl this summer. I mean, which means you're playing the played, Hollywood Bowl right. this summer. I mean, you've done this, <laughs> you've done it before, but what keeps this fresh? I mean, is it Alice who's keeping it fresh? Is it the, the, the musicians are challenging each other? Is it's all how, that. Yeah. It's all that. Yeah, Alice still loves to work. He doesn't have to do as many shows per year that we do, but we're knocking out, could be 80 to 100 shows in a year, which is definitely a lot. You got to keep your sanity. But the Hollywood Bowl, that is May 31st. They just officially announced that, that summer tour the other day. It's Alice headlining, and then it's Tesla and Lita Ford. And we're friends with like all the guys in those bands. That's going to be a fun hang. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be the first time Alice has headlined Hollywood Bowl since 1973. Oh, so we, he, didn't, he didn't headline the, the well, last time? We Who played there with Motley Crue. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this this is a head. Oh, wow. So this yeah. is huge. Yeah. Yeah, it keeps getting bigger venues in certain cities. Like 2017 and 18, well, 2017, we did Greek Theater with Deep Purple. 
And it was a double bill, but they would close the show every night. But then 2018, we did headline Greek theater. It got a little, yeah. little bigger. And then 2019, last year, we did Hollywood Vampires at the Greek theater, our own show. But now it's Alice at Hollywood Bowl. So this is a good, it's a good package tour. This is like a good ticket that people will want to buy. You know, Tesla's a great band. They got four out of five original people, a lot of hits, great guys. And Lita Ford, of course, everybody knows her. And Did you ever see Tesla? Sure. You went well, to- Actually, Troy Laquetta, I've known since I'm practically a kid, the drummer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he um, was so supportive early on. I, I did a recording with his cousin, who's a really great guitarist and also played bass. And I did a demo with Troy's cousin to promote myself. Like, here's me playing music in a bunch of different styles. And this costs some money, but this was social networking back in the day. I had to go into a, a studio, like a formal studio, and... Get, hire this guitar player and tell him what I want to do. I want to do this straight up rock tune. I want to do a ballad. I want to do something more jazzy. I want to do something funky. And then I had to have the engineer after the fact cross fade all these mini tunes <laughs> together. One fades out, one fades in. It was a demo for myself, basically. And the guitarist, Scotty, said, you know, my cousin's Troy Laquetta from Tesla. And this was when they were all over MTV. He said, I'm going to give him this cassette. And one day, out of the blue, Troy called me when I was like 21 or so mm-hmm. and said, hey, I heard your your tape. Sounding great. Keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track. And we've been friends ever since. So this will be nice to tour together. That's a really nice thing to do for a musician. Oh. I yeah. mean, that's very oh. uh, uh, supportive. You, know? you need to know from somebody who's doing it for real that you're on the right track, that yeah. you're not going down the wrong road. It's true. You do have a nice click of friends. I uh, every December, don't you? All of your drummer friends get together. What's uh, what's oh, you're that all about? about? The eight one eight drummers lunch. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been January when we've been able to do it. Like we just did one. We're taping this on what is today, January twenty fourth. Yeah, right. So we just did one because of the NAM convention. That's National Association of Music Merchants. It's the trade show for the music industry. It's in Anaheim every year, and people come in. They come in from all over the world. So it's a good time to do the lunch. So this is, again, San Fernando Valley, West Valley, at a certain (laughs) restaurant that lets us do our thing there. They got a patio, and on a random Tuesday afternoon, all of a sudden, all these drummers, a lot dressed in black, and they're coming in, and people are probably going, what is happening? (laughs) And we're noisy, of course, but it's just a very nice camaraderie that drummers have that maybe you don't see so much in other other instruments, guitar, bass, not to say that they hate each other, but drummers like to get together and hang. And so this started years ago. It was myself, and it was Jordan Burns, who for a long time was in the band Strung Out, uh, a San, West San Fernando Valley punk band. They influenced a lot of people. I mean, Blink-182 used to open for them, bands like that. And Jordan and then Dean Butterworth, we started it. Dean plays in Good Charlotte and Sugar Ray. Him and I used to share a practice space, but the three of us would go to lunch and goof off, and then we'd invite other guys that lived in the area, and it just kept growing, and it turned into a thing. Can you tell us the restaurant? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's just Shout out. always at Stonefire Grill in West Hills, yeah. Oh, that's we don't put it out on social media <laughs> beforehand. We, we put it out afterwards. You know. We're going to stalk you next yeah. next January. <laughs> no, we, uh, we get some great... People showing up, a lot of brand new guys, but like Denny Sywell lives in the area. He played with Wings. He's the guy mm-hmm. on Live and Let Die. And Ralph Johnson, my buddy Ralph, he's a West Valley guy. He's Earth, Wind, and Fire since 71. And and they, they loved it. And Same. then they love mixing it up with all the new guys. And it was just so great to see. 
People think nothing happens in the valley. That's right. Oh, they're happening police. <laughs> Let's go on influences. Just you've met so many drummers. There's a lot of drummers that you you haven't met that you probably wish you had. Um, you probably you had touched on um, one of the first singles you bought. Can you talk a little bit about that and and the influence possibly that this drummer had on your life? Are we talking about Rush? Yeah, I believe so. Of course. Yeah, I mean that's just such a typical story, but it's true that so many of us started playing because of Neil Peart, and we did just lose him, and it was a very – it cast a heavy cloud over the week that was the NAM convention because that was what was happening right after his passing. And so there was no time for people to put any formal tributes together, but he was definitely the talk of everybody. I mean, it's just a thing. Everyone started because of something, and for guys – Anywhere near the age of us, it was because of him. And I think he, he just got sick of hearing that. I mean, that was a, the famous thing with Neil Peart. If you meet him, don't start gushing all over him about how he's the reason you started playing. He'll turn right off. It's in, it's in limelight, the lyrics. You know, I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. That's true. He writes about it. As a professional drummer, what is it that you hear in Neil Peart that influences you or that you get, that inspires you? I mean, I'm sure you still listen to those records. Like, how did how did he do that? Or wow, he he how how did he plan this out? Well, at my residency gig, which usually it's the last Wednesday of the month, but we did one during Nam Week. There was a set in the middle where there was a bunch of Rush tunes performed, and several drummers participated. We didn't advertise it. We didn't want to like exploit anything, but it just seemed like a thing people wanted to do. So I played Limelight. And so it's like, okay, I haven't ever really played the whole song all the way through. I got to sit there and really dissect every little part. And even that song, that's challenging. That's not like Xanadu, one of their most challenging. But it's like, wow, these are really cleverly orchestrated parts. And his transitions and fills were just so unusual, but became so so known to everybody with all the people air drumming out there and there's not one Rush song that isn't challenging in one way or another, but he wasn't always playing busy. He had really just expertly crafted parts that fit the songs, and it's things that you might not have ever thought of yourself, but he did with this crazy power trill with the guy with the voice sounding like he's on <laughs> helium. You know, Who would have thought that this would have been such a iconic, huge band? But they are. The- Certainly their label didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, they probably had it rough. I mean, everybody that had a different sound early on in their career they were told no a lot this seems like a really good time to take a break we will be right back Welcome back to What Difference Does It Make and our interview with drummer Glenn Sobel. When you were on Warner Brothers with Beautiful Creatures, mm-hmm. what was what was that experience like with a band that was on a major label that... Learned had, a lot. Yeah. Definitely learned a lot. And, and this was a very 80s influence group. Basically, the two big influences of that were Guns N' Roses, ACDC, with a modern vibe. And this was 2001 when we had that record deal. We did OzFest and... Just, boy, that was a crash course in the music industry. Of course, everything's very different now, but learned a lot about what not to do. But there was a point where I had joined the band, and I just got called to do it. I guess there was an audition, but they weren't like 
calling a bunch of people. This was a guitar player, DJ Ashba. I've known mm-hmm. forever. I had played with him in his instrumental trio, like, I don't know, five years before joining Beautiful Creatures. I, I got the call from him and the A&R guy, who I also knew a little bit. That's a whole nother, whole nother story where the A&R guy thought he was in the band and he was a frustrated <laughs> drummer. Jeez. But, uh, no, it was a great experience, and that's another one of my favorite records I've ever played on. There's still people all over the world that every now and then they'll come up with a CD of that for me to sign. Mm. It definitely has a following. And by this time in 01, I think Warner Brothers was thinking a couple things. Like, okay, grunge has been around now almost 10 years. It really erased the slate. Maybe it's time to bring back some good time rock with guitar solos. And and this was Warner Brothers' Yeah. reason to do that and the band buck cherry was out mm-hmm. and they had some success on the first record so their second record we had our fingers crossed that that was going to do really well because that would be good for us that's the way label people think well that's big and we got something that sounds like that so we're going to put money into that i mean there's there's no rhyme or reason they don't know what they're doing half the time if something is successful they all want to take credit and if it fails it's the artist's fault the record business is a lot of guessing and throwing things up against the wall and seeing what sticks. Mm-hmm. But we made a very cool record, and we had a great producer that was able to navigate our crazy A&R guy that fancied himself a writer and a producer. And we got out on OzFest, and at first we thought, oh, we're dead. This is OzFest. We're mm-hmm. on the second stage with Hate Breed and Slipknot's on the main stage, <laughs> and there's all these heavy bands. Oh, we're just, we're dead. But no, it actually worked in our favor. We were unlike anybody else. And actually, there was a lot of commercial acts on the bill that year. Lincoln Park was there and Disturbed and Crazy Town and uh, Marilyn Manson was on the bill. So it was actually a good mix of hard rock and heavy metal styles. And we just stood out. And we had a great time just proving ourselves every day on that tour. And sometimes we'd be on as early as... 10 in the morning mm-hmm. they'd rotate or sometimes as late as two in the afternoon <laughs> yeah at 10 in the morning there's kids lined people up people show yeah ready to come in and mosh i just want to go wait pace yourself black sabbath <laughs> isn't on for another 10 hours you know mm-hmm. but but yeah our manager was geezer butler's wife gloria butler and that's how she was able to get us onto the the tour that year and like i said we just we learned a lot because before we hired her as our manager there was no manager I joined when they were between management. So all these managers came to our rehearsal room and met with us and all these producers too. And we'd sit and we'd talk with them. Uh, there's one certain very big manager that we had like a five-hour meeting with. And that was like going to school. Mm. Actually, I could say it was Doc McGee. Oh. Yeah. He was, he was cool. And in retrospect, maybe things would have been a lot different had we gone with him, but we didn't. But I remember we... We were at his office for like three hours and we went across the street to the Rainbow Bar and Grill. It was right there. And they kept it open for us. Like, oh, Doc McGee's meeting with some guys. You know, let's keep it open. They, they got respect, you know. And, and then word got out. Oh, those guys are beautiful creatures are meeting with Doc McGee. And our label heard it. And I don't think they loved the idea of us having a very 80s manager because we had to blend in with new stuff. They weren't going to put us on tour with 80s acts. We had to go out with bands like Marilyn Manson and all that newer type of rock so maybe that's a major reason we didn't go with doc but he was really nice and we learned so much meeting with him and all these producers and you had to weed out who really was interested in the band or who just saw it's a major label and there's a lot of money to make you know a producer will charge a label 
a ridiculous fee because the label is a big bank. Did you end up owing money or what, uh, when, when it all was said and done, usually you well, hear about like, yeah, you know. it's not like the individuals themselves. Well, right. I know, money. but right. But that's a common, that's a common yeah. mistake people make is thinking that if your record doesn't recoup that you're in hawk to the label for the rest right. of your life. No. It's a tax write-off for the label. Right. Well, right, but th- but they hold that money. I mean that. I mean, if until you recoup, that's when you. Yeah. That's when they'll pay you back. It's a it's, it's a strange right. business. I mean, this was before 360 deals, which is where the label gets a piece of every revenue stream, not just your record, mm-hmm. but your T-shirts and your concerts and your VIP packages and uh, yeah, because they have to justify staying alive and and being the big label that they are, but. No, we, um, what was the question that, that got us here? <laughs> we were just talking about, uh, well, oh, just oh, contracts or beautiful Right, creatures. right, just yeah. owing, yeah. Yeah, yeah just money, was, money, a, many issues. That's, that's where the lot of bands break up because there's money issues. All of a sudden, yeah, m- usually it's money. Yeah. They say creative differences, that means money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we made this record and there was a lot of money wasted, which was actually the name of our first single, Wasted, but it wasn't about that. It should have <laughs> been, but... No, just stupid money spent on stupid things that, like I said, it was learning experience. And I just watched all this waste. I'm like, oh my God, we were having that guy to mix one song and we're paying him how much? That's not the right guy. And it turned out it wasn't the right guy. And they paid him a ridiculous amount of money to try mixing one song and uh, just things like that. Uh, I could go on and on about it, but <laughs> no, we, or a photo shoot in Times Square where they put us up in a hotel and wardrobe and makeup and it was at a high rise. And I think the price tag for that was 30, 40 grand, something like that. Yeah. yeah. All recoupable under our mm-hmm. record. And they right. use, they use like 15% of your album sales to recoup the whole thing. It's a strange process and there's not a lot of transparency. Mm-hmm. And they act like they have no way of telling you solid figures and answers when you ask them questions about the numbers. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's a game of obfuscation. They're going to play that game with you and you need a manager that's really going to be on your side to watch out for your, your bottom line. It's insane. Learning experience. Yes, indeed. Yeah. (laughs) We talk about rock drummers, but you, you've got a wide, uh, You've got a wide swath of uh, of influences through. Sure. Um, who were some other drummers that possibly you wouldn't expect someone like you to to have? Oh, the unexpected influences. Oh yeah, like yeah. oh I love this guy does Lots insane things. Yeah, but like who? Um, throw out a few well, and why? And why is that? For people that would know me from Alice Cooper, yeah, there might be some things that are a surprise. But for drummers, anybody that talks to me, some things are obvious. I mean, I. Grew up in L.A., so at an early age, at 16, I was going to the Baked Potato Jazz Club, which is still there in Studio City. I play there sometimes, but it's tiny. It's it's a living room, and people know it from all over the world. It's famous. They walk in and go, this is it? Mm-hmm. But that's why it's so great, and a guy like Vinny Coliuta would play there back in the day. Like He'd play all the time, so it wouldn't be jam-packed every time, and I'd stay both sets, and I'd sit at the perfect vantage point, like 10 feet away, watching and just soaking it in. That was school. You know, and I watched David Garibaldi play there. That's Tower Powers drummer. Um, well, my mentor, Greg Bissonette, would play there all the time. And just watching all these guys was such an education. And watching the band and watching how a band interacts on stage, that was important to see all that and how they're they're reading sometimes the, the tunes they're playing, maybe sight reading, 
charts and there's improvisational sections and how they go from one solos to the next. And that was, I didn't realize at the time how much of an education that was. Uh, Jeff Percaro, I saw play there. The list goes on. So those are very typical drummer influences, but maybe not every general rock fan would, yeah. would realize. Uh, not uncommon for rock drummers to be influenced by jazz. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So let me ask you about another drummer. I'd be remiss, of my resident expert. Um, what do you think of Terry Bozio? Huge influence. Yeah. Huge, yeah. Uh, I, I am pretty good buddies with him. I've known him since, well, maybe about 25 years now. And I remember thinking it was one of the greatest moments of my young career when I met him. There used to be this club. There's a lot of clubs that are just done back in the day. So you hear me say there used to be this venue. Mm -hmm. Well, it was in Canoga Park. It was Club M Mancini's. Do you remember that at all? <laughs> I do. Do yeah. you? Yes, I do. Wow. I do well, they used to have a jam night every Tuesday, it was, and it went on for a couple of years. And I was 18, 19 when I was going to that. And this was, I think, the first time I ever played with a professional band. But you'd play double drums because the drummer in the house band was Mark Craney, who was most known for playing with Gino Vanelli, I Just Want to Stop. Mm -hmm. That record, Jethro Tull, Tower of Power, amazing player. Dealt with a lot of health issues, diabetes and things. There was a big benefit they had for him back in the day. And unfortunately, we lost him years ago. But he was the drummer in the house band. And you'd sit in and you'd play double drums with him because he was lefty. So they had to have a right-handed mm -hmm. kit. And that was the challenge. You'd trade fours or eights with Mark, you know, a drum solo section. They leave for everybody. And then what that turned into, that jam night, it turned into this thing they do about once a year, kind of like what we do at the drummer lunches, except this was playing, and they called it the Woodland Hills Drum Club. And it was Mark Craney, and it was Greg Bissonette, and it was Myron Grumbacher from Pat Benatar's band, Tristan Bowden from Chicago, Don Perry from Jethro Tull, all live in the West Valley. That's like drummer central. Best kept secret. But So I was the kid. I was Greg's student or his former student by then, and they would invite me up to play at these things and they'd have three drum sets set up on stage <laughs> with this band and they'd trade eights. And I guess I played pretty okay one night and Terry Bozio approached me and introduced himself and said that he really liked a lot of the things I was doing. And I thought, this is amazing. I can't believe this is happening. And he called me a couple of days later and got my address and sent me out a VHS of one of his solo drum concerts that no one had seen. And we became buddies and he recommended me to, to Jennifer Batten a couple years later. I did a cool record with her. It's phenomenal. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I grew up, you know, just idolizing a guy like him, not just missing persons. Mm -hmm. That yeah. was the first, which had great playing on it, man. Spring Session M, that record. That was that was a game changer for a lot of people. But then getting into UK, do you remember them at all? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that was a big deal. I do. And, uh, well, Frank Zappa, of course. I wasn't mm -hmm. quite as big of a Zappa guy as other people were, but I, I did appreciate it. So that was really gracious and, and cool of Terry. That's great. That is were you going to mention a few? You had a, some, oh, no, some a, flashes from the past. Yeah. yeah. It, turns She's out, got, it turns out we have a common, uh, some, a common friend, I guess, maybe. And he told me to ask you about uh, Offbeat. Oh, who's the common friend? Uh, Craig Fields. Who was the cousin of Joel Sawyer. Right, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen yeah. him in a while. Yeah. Oh, Offbeat was cool. I, I have that somewhere on VHS, and I can't remember if I transferred that to MP4 file, but that was in <laughs> high school, and it was the talent show at the high school that we went to, and <laughs> it was it was kind of my idea. We should do like an all-drummer thing, 
And it turned into <laughs> six guys. And this was my junior year of high school for Joel and I. We were the two main drummers in this. And we had the two drum sets and then four percussion setups, you know, congas and rototoms and everything else. And we'd rotate. There was like three rotations. So everybody, all six of us, got to play double drums. But Joel Singer and I, we really liked Genesis a lot. We loved when Phil Collins and Chester Thompson would do double drums and do the same exact fills together. And so we said, oh, we got to do a solo like that where it's just (laughs) note for note. And we spent hours in my bedroom. Talk about noise. I mean, two drum sets. The neighbors really love that. But we spent time at my house with the two drums at his house. And this was just something that we really wanted to do. And we put together this great double drum solo and we pulled it off. I'll watch the video today and and think, how did I do that? Like it was some crazy chops that we were doing and I would come up with the lick or he would come up with it or he'd place it, you know, compositionally. And we had this part at the end where the, the other four guys would step off stage and we had the final two minutes of doing our double drum thing and the crowd roared so loud at the end of it it scared me it was so loud but yeah i have that on vhs and we did it again the next year too offbeat we called it offbeat 2 the sequel and uh because we were seniors then and and we were getting really weird and into very like metric modulation polyrhythms and we had a great time but the first year was the best just because you know it was it was something no one had seen and we won the talent show and the funny thing is i recently on Facebook said hi to a guy named Rob that was in the act that night. He was a baseball player, maybe also a football player, but there was a group of jocks that were also musicians. And so Rob was in the group called Horizon and they played Runaway by Bon Jovi. And Rob was just <laughs> ladies man and he's singing lead and the girls went nuts and they put them last they were like the favorite to win, and we were like second out of ten acts, and we won. And this guy Rob, he was mad. We got beat by a bunch of drummers. This is, you know, and and it's funny. I said hi to him on Facebook, maybe you know, within the last month or two, and and uh, it's just cool. Facebook is still cool for that kind of thing, but I'll just never forget that. And there was a lot of talented people back in in high yeah. school back in the day. It's where it all starts. Yeah. Did you play snare? What were what what did you play in the band? In snare Arch band? Was it all? Snare? It wasn't no quads uh, or anything. No, I did quads the last year in senior year, but I, I think I like snare the best. Yeah, but it was good that I did both, and I didn't even realize at the time that it was going to be that challenging. Snare when I was in ninth grade, mm-hmm. I got thrown in the deep end, big time. <laughs> Dan Gillen, yeah, well, he helped me. <laughs> Push it. He did. He yeah. helped me. Oh, no, yeah. He made me realize. All right, I can get through this. I can do this. I just got to practice and. You have to know that you could do it first. Yeah, that's great. Great instructors. Humble had, beginnings. Humble be- It all begins. <laughs> at, yeah. Um, anything else we got for our friend? What um, plug away? I, I know we talked about Alice Cooper. Anything else uh, we can? Well, the tour we mentioned, right? The good yeah. old summer tour. I mean, the Hollywood Vampires record. That's still a new record. Rise. It's called. Came out a few months ago. That's available in all formats, digital and box set you know, gatefold album, whatever they, we, they, we didn't even talk about being in the studio with, with Joe Perry and, and Alice. What, what is that about? Peek out. A lot of late <laughs> nights. Uh, yeah. Hollywood vampires. A couple of them literally are vampires. Johnny Depp and Joe Perry. They, they like to work late. And the very first demo recording session I did started at like one thirty in the morning because I had a gig <laughs> way down in Anaheim. This was Nam a couple years ago the NAM convention week. And I was playing with Richie Sambora down there 
and I was called to do this session to, to guarantee me, lock me in for the record. It was Tommy Hendrickson, New York guy, you know, he's like, dude, I need you to come down for this, this session. We got to make sure and just that make sure they know that you're the guy for this record, you know, and when is it? Wednesday. I can't. I got a gig. He said, doesn't matter. Come after. I said, it's in Anaheim. If I come after, I won't get there till one thirty in the morning. He said, perfect. They're just getting <laughs> going at that time. And yeah, I showed up like one thirty, whatever. And by the time I got recording, maybe it was closer to 2.30 or 3. And Johnny said, like, play something impossible. And I thought like, no problem, because I'm really out of it. I just played a long gig. It was with Richie and several other artists. It was one of those gigs where I was backing up many people. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's good to be burnt out because your guard is down and you're not trying to do anything. You're just doing it. And I guess it went well enough to where Johnny and Joe, you can get a thing called demo-itis where you get just married to the way the demo sounds. And when it, when it comes time to do the actual record, you don't want to change anything. You love the demo. And so I had to write down exactly whatever I did at three in the morning and replicate it on the actual record. But there were several nights of that, those demo sessions that would, that would go late and I'd be like nodding off and saying, all right, I'm going to get out of here. And Joe would be, Oh, you're not leaving yet. Are you? <laughs> no, I guess not. Okay. What's next? And no, but I'm proud of that record. It was, it was done in a way where there wasn't a lot of or any real post production manipulation of tuning things or artificially lining up the drums with the program called beat detective. We wanted to avoid all that. We wanted to make a just rock organic sounding record. I'm proud of it. That's great. Very cool. And we got more tour dates with that coming up in Europe for your, for your European listeners. And we do have some. I'm sure you do. (laughs) Yeah. In August, September, we'll be out there. A bunch of dates already announced like France, Italy, UK, um, Belgium, a lot of places. Phenomenal. We got you covered. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Glenn, for coming out. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. This was so great. It's a great podcast. Usually I'm talking about drum gear and right. you know, <laughs> not, nothing wrong with that, but this is a little more no. yeah, general about geek out. Yeah. Yeah. Music no, geek. Yeah, just fan, like, fan. <laughs> podcast allows you to go deep. Yeah. <laughs> on right. stuff you like, on stuff you really, well, I mean, yeah. not that we yes. like drum gear, but. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Glenn, and um, thank you, Holly, for, for helping me out here. Oh, <laughs> yeah. pleasure's mine. No, right. thank you. It was really it was great to have you here. Okay, until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 